Hello there. You're listening to the Box Office Show. I'm Ryan Hill. And I'm Dylan Johnson. Today we're going to talk about the box office numbers from last weekend and our box office predictions for this upcoming weekend. We'll also be doing the second part of our director analysis series on one of cinema's great giants, Martin Scorsese. The new batch of his films we'll be discussing include The Color of Money, The Age of Innocence, and Silence. start out with some news dylan you've been gone for a couple weeks so i've been holding Mm -hmm. off on this piece of news because i wanted to uh discuss it with you as an update to our uh oscars discussion two years back when the slap unfolded the slap heard around the world Mm -hmm. so uh jada pinkett smith dropped a new memoir so she's been doing some like rounds of interviews and uh she mentioned in one of those that her and will have been separated since 2016 yeah it's just like i just feel i just have so much pity for will smith i just (laughs) he's just trying his best here he's just going out there he's doing his best he's trying to make movies trying to be a public figure and uh it's it's tough it's hard man I just, it's so stupid. The slap was for nothing. It was for nothing. She, did you see the comments too, where she was like, she, he said, keep my wife's name out your mouth. She was like, wife, what? We haven't, we're not there. We haven't been saying that for years. That's what caught her off guard about the whole thing. Mm-hmm. That's just crazy. I can't believe it. I mean, we had mentioned this, all observers wow. of it had mentioned this, that there's definitely some uh, insecurity about the relationship that compelled Will to act out in that way. But yeah, man. the fact that it's confirmed like this, I again, it's like her going out there talking about their relationship and all this. It's just, why didn't they just get divorced? Like, what are we doing? This is funny. It ties into a, we'll get to that in Age of Innocence, but it's like, <laughs> we are not in a time where like, it's that bad to have a divorce. Like 50% of the population or whatever has been divorced at some point. I think it might be even higher. I think the majority of marriages end in divorce. Who are they doing this for? The kids are out of the house. They're doing their own thing. Like, why? Why are they? I mean, different people stay together for different reasons. But I mean, I don't know. I, we, we, we just don't know anything about this situation. Everything that we see, everything that comes out seems bad. But you never know. I mean, you never know. But everything that comes out seems really, really bad. It does. It gets it worse and like, worse the more we learn about it. But you never know. Maybe they're just not showing the good parts. You never know. Maybe. I don't know. I think they should have just cut the cord. But it's possible, which is almost certainly the case, is that you know they're a power couple in Hollywood and entertainment. So mm-hmm. they saw it was a better business investment to just stay of together. Of course. But now, I mean, that's all falling apart. So that was really no reason. It's like no one, everyone is rooting for y'all to just go your separate ways and enjoy your lives without uh, bringing us all into this mess continuously. But uh, yeah, so we will, I don't know, I guess we'll see how that develops. In other news, release date shuffle has returned. Let's go. I mean, just craziness. So as a result of the actor's strike, which is still ongoing, Paramount, they have uh, shifted some titles, including Mission Impossible, Dare to Reckoning Part 2. No! A full year it has been delayed. No! Now, now coming out May 2025. I'm devastated. 
Yeah, that's that's a rough one. That is a rough one indeed. They've also delayed A Quiet Place Day 1 to June 2024, which I don't care as much about. <laughs> yeah, that was a, a couple months change, so that's not too big. However, SpongeBob Search for SquarePants, that has moved from May 2025 to December 2025. So interesting. I don't know yeah. why it was already scheduled for that. I guess, I mean, I don't know how long the, the voice acting, which I'm assuming is what they're delaying it for. They probably delayed it so that it's not in competition with Mission Impossible. They've only got so many slots. They don't want to. I guess that's true. It. Yeah. They had the May date. 2025. And then push SpongeBob afterwards. So that's a possibility. But also maybe they wanted the voice cast to also do press. That's also possible. Disney right. also had some release date shuffles. Pixar's Elio has been delayed from March 2024 to June 2025. And also getting delayed a full year. Snow White, the live action remake, it has been delayed from March 2024 to March 2025. No! Those no, are pretty really big uh, changes. The big jumps, yeah. Those were already filmed like we've seen trailers i guess not for snow white but there has been footage that's been released like they've shot that already so, it's in post yeah so they're just i think they're doing this because they're worried about uh plenty of other films that aren't in production right now mm-hmm. that there's just going to be too big of a hole in late 2024 and in early 2025 um because nothing's in production right now and hasn't been for months now so yeah yeah, they're preemptively just shifting around their slate so they don't have too um, big of a void later on. But all right, let's jump into the box office breakdown for October 20th to the 22nd. Taylor Swift, the Eras Tour, still holding on to the uh, box office throne in its second weekend with $33 million. Absolutely insane. Killers of the Flower Moon with $23 million came in second. Mm-hmm. Exorcist Believer, $5.6 million. Paw Patrol, Mighty Movie, 4.4 million. A re-release of Nightmare Before Christmas in the top five, 4.2 million. That's crazy. Saw X with 3.6 million. The Creator, 2.6 million. Haunting in Venice, a measly 1.1 million. The Blind, still hitting the 1 mil mark. And The Nun 2, $880,000, just shy of a mil. Yeah, for our predictions for the upcoming weekend, 27th to the 29th, Halloween weekend, we have a big new release, Five Nights at Freddy's, although it'll also be on Peacock. It's already been released there, so people can either watch it at home or they can go out to the theater and see it. Dylan, what is your prediction for this? I think there's a little bit of hype around it, and I think people would want to go to the theaters to see it. It's about to be Halloween next week, and this is like the big Halloween weekend of October for movies, for horror movies specifically. I think people will go see it. I'm going to say maybe like 22 mil. You know, horror movies have been doing well recently. It's just going to be duking it out with eras, you know, for the top spot. I think it'll take it, but it just depends on how hardcore those Swifties are. And they're pretty (laughs) fucking hardcore. They absolutely are. Let me tell you. So I think that's great because we got an unfiltered prediction right there. Let me tell you what the range for this is right now. This is crazy. Mm -hmm. 50 million to 80 million. You're That's the me. prediction range for this. You're yes. shitting me. Like the pre-sales what? were crazy on this. Like the fan base is 
showing That's insane. out. Yeah. I knew there was hype, but I didn't think it was that crazy. I was way off, I guess. <laughs> That's Unless what I'm bombs. saying. Everyone, like months ago, people were like, I mean, yeah, probably 20 mil. It didn't look that great. It's got day and date. It so looks it's like decent. just stay home. So it's shocking to me as well. So yeah, I think it might get 55 mil. It, but it could go even higher than that. Again, people were saying it could go up to 70 mil, 80 mil. So that would That's be insane. Truly insane. But I don't think, I think it'll be a huge opening day for like the fan base. But then I don't know how much uh, throughout the whole weekend people will be going out. But yeah, we will see about that one. Um, and then we also, we haven't been able to lately, but the box office draft, my final slot still unfilled we haven't been able to uh announce my selection for that yet it is time obviously uh you know the taylor swift thing has come and passed but that one wasn't going to be a selection anyway fair um the <laughs> five nuts at freddy's could have been a contender i guess who would have thought but that will also not be the selection it will be disney's wish Oh snap! I'm gonna win. <laughs> Sorry. Here's the you thing: it's gonna make three hundred million dollars. Three hundred to five hundred million dollars. What I'm it. hoping and praying, okay, that Disney just pumps a bunch of money into the marketing and they uh-huh. create some sort of Frozen-like phenomenon, because nothing else I see is gonna be able to to get there. And honestly, I mean, yeah, I don't know. Wish could go either way, because Encanto didn't do that well, but it had like yeah. you know, it was around the pandemic time, it's 2021. Um. Yeah, Disney stuff has just not been doing great lately, but mm-hmm. I'm hoping Elemental that was able to leg out to around 500 million. And that started again, it had like a 20 mil opening, it was like the worst of Pixar's history. Wish I'm hoping, you know, the musical element, Disney's mm-hmm. 100th anniversary, I'm hoping that'll have some appeal, bring people out. So it should have a better opening, you just start off better. And I'm hoping it can do the same thing Elemental did, which is just word of mouth, leg out. There's no real like kids films for this, you know, winter season. So I'm hoping through November and into December, it can just leg out to barely getting enough. It'll be extremely close uh, if I am able to get there, but I don't know. We will see, but that is my, uh, my Hail Mary selection wish. Yeah. I don't know. I bet a lot of money. Considering that I, I scraped and clawed my way back into this competition from what was a very measly start, I think I've earned this win. So I hope Wish <laughs> just bombs at the box office. I hope that I dominate your box office draft because I have I have fought tooth and nail to win this year considering mm-hmm. how terrible it started off and how badly you beat me the last two years. <laughs> I think I, I've earned a win finally. So if if God is good and God is merciful, He will strike you down <laughs> in my name. How dare you and and burn wish to the ground at the box office. Yeah, we will we will see. But in the uh, shooting star, everyone out there, wish on it for me so that this film can work. But yeah, Disney has not been having a great year, um, so we will see. It is it is going to be a nail biter for sure. But all right, let's move on to our main segments, talking about some Scorsese pictures in anticipation of the newest one, Killers of the Flower Moon, which we are going to see right after this recording. Woo! A little uh, inside baseball there of how we're about to do this. So yeah, look forward to that episode coming next week. But let's talk about the films deep in this filmography that we went through, picked out, Color of Money, 
1986, mm-hmm. our 80s selection. It is a sequel to The Hustler. These are actually all fascinating picks for him because they're things that you wouldn't normally expect Scorsese to do or you wouldn't associate with him. Yeah. Like doing a sequel, doing adaptations of those particular um, books. We'll talk about that later on, but like his period piece drama. It's just these are very, uh, you know, big swings, not necessarily in terms of uh, like budget or subject matter, but just in terms of going outside of his uh, normal films, I guess, which he's never created a lane around himself or a box around himself, but of course. others definitely have of his like gangster flicks. So gangster. here we get to see him uh, flex his muscles with other genres, other types of stories. Mm-hmm. So yeah, a sequel here, the OG legacy sequel before Tuck and Maverick and all those. We had Color of Money, the sequel to The Hustler. So Paul Newman reprising his role as uh, Eddie Nelson. Eddie Tom Felson. Cruise. Eddie Felson? Okay. Felson. Where did I get Nelson from? I don't know. I mean, who's named Felson, let's be honest. Nelson seems more realistic. <laughs> I mean, yeah. That's probably why it's... It's because uh, his, his nickname is Fast Eddie Felson. So it, it just like uh, the, the, the alliteration uh, kind of... Yeah, they're really stretched for that one. I don't know about that. Yeah, a little bit. Um, but it Tom kind of Cruise. flirts fast that he fell in. I kind of like it. Yeah. Tom Cruise. Right. Mary Elizabeth Mastratonio. Quite a name okay. there. John Saturo. Forrest Whitaker. Bill Cobbs. Screenplay by Richard Price. Dylan, had you seen this movie before? I had not. Not at okay. all. Okay. Our first time for both of us. Had you seen The Hustler before? No, and I still actually haven't. I haven't either. This was one of those right. things where like I knew of that piece of information that it was a sequel the to The sequel, Hustler. Yeah. And then I had forgotten. And then I rediscovered that after watching the film. And I was like, oh, snap. Yeah. I need to go watch that. What's crazy is I own The Hustler on DVD and I have not seen it. <laughs> <laughs> As many of my films are. It was, it's because it came in a pack with like, it was like four in one movies. Uh, I think it was like MASH and a couple of other things. I don't fucking remember. But the hustler was no, no, no it was ah, I don't remember. It was the hustler was in it. It was a four pack, and the hustler was in it. I don't even know where it is. It's somewhere in a box somewhere, mm-hmm. and uh, I just didn't never watched it. And I want to. It sounds good. I do love Paul Newman, but uh, I just never got around to it. And then I figured this movie coming out, you know, twenty five years after the original, I don't think I'll be missing much if I just skip the original. I feel like it'll be a self contained story, and my bet was right. It this was sure very was. much its own story, and it does not it doesn't even feel like a sequel, and you don't even really need to have seen the hustler to watch it at all. Exactly. Yeah. Which is good. Agreed. I think that was wonderfully done. Um, because yeah, I'm sure having that knowledge of fast Eddie Felson's character from The Hustler will make it a more enjoyable experience for color money, but you can definitely just come into this and just oh, it's a story of like mm-hmm. this washed up old timer uh pool hustler who's now got this hot shot under his wing and that's just a story like that on its own totally could have worked. And you get the idea of like, Oh, his backstory, they reference it a lot, but that's just what it felt like, like natural backstory to this character that's layered and complex. Um, but you can go back and see a whole movie about that backstory apparently. So I'm much, yeah. uh, definitely looking forward to that. Um, because I loved this movie. This it was, was really fantastic. good. It was amazing. Oh my gosh. First of all, just Paul Newman. Incredible. Amazing. Dude, dude, dude. Paul Newman <laughs> is so cool. Paul he Newman is, is it's insane. so fucking cool. 
I've been there. watching some of his older movies where he's got the gray and hair and sometimes he has a little mustache. Like I watched a bit of Slapshot and I watched a bit of uh, The Verdict. So mm-hmm. I've seen some of his older years and I mean, God, he, and I've seen, you know, some younger stuff too. I've seen HUD, things like that. But God, he's yeah. just, just so fucking cool and everything. Oh my he God. Absolutely what a, is. He's incredible he's, actor. He's got the, again, that like charisma, that just screen presence. Some people just yeah. have it. Other people don't. Newman absolutely has it and to the highest degree. Just Absolutely. magnetic anytime he's on screen. It's I also crazy Paul too. Newman when I grow up, <laughs> me too. Especially, I want to age like Paul Newman because this is oh insane. my god! Look at he's, what a silver fox. He was in his seventies, I think, sixties or seventies when he made this. And God, he was handsome. It's insane because I saw the verdict that came out a few years before that. He looks better in this than in the verdict. It's something about I think that's intentional. I mean, he's supposed to be an well, alcoholic. Certain, yeah, the verdict. verdict. He's yeah a much rougher character, but in this one, yeah, they make him be cool and uh, he's able he's to a charming right hustler. Into it. he's got it yeah. he's so charming it is when he's talking to what is it janelle Jan- janelle in the beginning where he's like trying yeah. to picture the whiskey god he's so charming it's just yeah he's got the spell on the whole audience the whole time he got his oscar for this it definitely uh was long overdue because there's a I think he earned it. I handful of really performances good. that he should have got before this. But I also don't think this is just one of those. Because, I mean, you know, like the Revenant for Leo, Leo and things like this. Yeah. Like people get like the, oh, we kind of missed you on a work that you really should have won for. So we'll give you this yeah. uh, like complimentary one later down the line. This seems like that. But again, I thought the performance I thought it was, fantastic. was incredible. So it was yeah, yeah, well it's so subtle and so balanced. Mm hmm. He feels very present in every scene, especially the scene where he gets hustled by Forrest Whitaker. Very good. So beautiful. But yeah, the whole whole film is just amazing. I had a huge smile on my face throughout the whole like first hour. Just like the way that they have him doing this setup, reeling in Vince and Carmen to join him going on the road. All of that is just perfectly done. Like all the little schemes he pulls even the first time when he's like first seeing Vince wrecking Totoro and he's like, Oh snap, this guy can be a guy. I need to get him on board with me. And he's sitting behind Carmen. First of all, the framing of the shot is amazing. Just having that as like a three minute single take of him leaning forward and back, like talking to Carmen offering $500 and like taunting her of whether or not she should accept the money and have him go play Vince or not masterful incredible just beautiful and then it continues on and on like the whole dinner scene when he's talking about uh his area of excellence being people and being able to read them um the whole bet with he's like oh i bet that guy's gonna strike out in a few minutes few seconds here and then he is gonna go up to talk to the the woman and if he gets her out of the bar they have to pay for the dinner and of course it's a woman he knows and yeah he did it as well as just like oh come see the car with me so it's like the way he sets everything up is just so slick and he's such a hustler and you love it. You love to see him pull these schemes because um, again, Newman's just so charismatic with it. So all of that's fantastic. Even the, yeah, just the way he plants those seeds of doubt into Vince and then is able to get to Carmen as well. Cause she does have that more hustler mindset. Um, so he's able to partner with her to, sort of pull those strings and make sure Vince um, does exactly what he wants him to do. Mm. Um, it's just amazing. Like the dialogue was 
on fire. I felt the performance, of course, were really well done. And then, come on, Scorsese's direction. I mean, oh yeah, it's just beautiful. The scene where they're in the bar, he just gives him the pool cue, like that special pool cue, mm-hmm. the balabushka. And, and Tom um, Cruise is running around looking for Carmen. <laughs> yes. And then he's looking around and then you see, because they come out of the office, he goes to like go to the pool tables. Carmen's at the mm-hmm. bar. Eddie's like there watching. He goes over to her, whispers something. We don't even hear that. We're just seeing from afar. And we already know what he's doing. He's going to have her go leave, go do something, probably to go. I think it was like he was just, just like, buy oh, a pack of cigarettes. Pack, yeah, buy a pack of cigs. So something that's ultimately harmless, but it's playing on those fears that he just invented for Vince uh, in the earlier scene when he was at his job. And just the way that the camera is just sitting there panning back and forth, seeing this go down. Mm-hmm. It's just beautiful. Like every little element to it, masterclass. Yeah, it's fantastic. I mean, he's just so damn charming. (laughs) I would let him hustle the hell out of me. I mean, God, I couldn't help it. He's just Mm -hmm. so good. God, it is. It is just such a joy to watch. To watch him play that role is just so, so well. Like I want to see the hustler to see how because I mean, he's playing the role 25 years apart, mm-hmm. which is a difficult thing to come back to after that much time, especially for a role that was literally just a one and done. It's a movie. You're done. You yeah. film, you know, two hours of a movie. You're, you're good to go sort of role. Not like a TV role where you've been playing it for years and you can kind of roll your way back into it. But to go 25 years from playing a character for only a short period of time to playing him again and have such charisma <laughs> at that age and such character. Oh my God. He's just so charming. I was I was convinced when he went and he got the woman to go outside, like like what they did was great. But knowing Paul Newman, how charming he is, I would have <laughs> believed it. I went with him. I, no, 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 no. I would have believed it if if the the scene was him walking up and just hitting on her and getting her to leave. Like if right. if the hustle was just he's so damn charming, of course <laughs> it's gonna work. Uh huh. Like the way yeah. they did it was was better. It's perfect. But I would have believed it if he just went and hit on her and she left the bar with him like a stranger. He's just so damn charming. For sure. So, yeah, that stuff was all great. Uh, And then, yeah, I love the dynamic, too, of Vince coming on. Obviously, he's a star pool player, but he doesn't know how to to work the hustle in the best way. So Mm -hmm. he's trying to Newman's trying to get him to get up to speed with that. And he just refuses to dump a game like he is that prideful or that competitive that he just doesn't want to lose even if it means that he'll be able to extract more money later down the line from these people mm-hmm. so i think uh eddie has a lot of great lines that he gives there of like oh you gotta have brains and balls you got too much of one not enough of the other um and then his whole philosophy of like oh money one is twice as sweet as money earned love that that being the mindset of the the hustler or the gambler um is great it's also funny, like going through this uh, stretch of films of like California Split to Wolf of Wall Street to now this of just like all these games uh, or just trying ways to win of money making quick. money. Yeah. Quick cash Crazy stuff. Yeah. Yeah. But in this one, again, like Scorsese is able to make it so engrossing and look so fun. Like all mm. those energetic camera moves that he has, the extreme like close ups on the the pool balls as they're like rolling along and they look huge. All of that is just fantastic. But the creme de la creme. Creme de la creme. We have Vince, Mr. 
Tom Cruise, who you know spends weeks training for this very shot, wearing a Vince shirt, which is hilarious, wearing his own name, um, getting that beautiful Balabushka Pulkyu, and he's mm-hmm. in there playing against the like big bad of that uh, particular pool bar. Yeah. And he's just crushing it while listening to werewolves in london which apparently is diegetic because he hits him with the the hair is perfect like <laughs> it's just what a scene what an amazing scene i cannot Tom Cruise has it. so much energy in this movie <laughs> for he's ridiculous he is just like bouncing around when he plays pool and just so show off he's like flipping the pool cue around like it's a like it's a samurai <laughs> sword or something yeah or a samurai staff god it's so funny what did you think of his hair in this movie? Dude. His hair is ridiculous. His hair looks so bad. <laughs> it's so, yeah. He looks so goofy in this, which it's is funny. because so it's so blown out. It's like Top Gun, which obviously was like, wow, it was great. They really catapulted him into superstardom. Yeah. And then this one, he really does, like he simultaneously, like that stuff is like kind of cool what he's doing there. But it's also like, he's so goofy. Like it's ridiculous. He is fully ridiculous. The hair, the whole gimmick, his attitude, like, he definitely wouldn't have been able to pull that off, I don't think. Or he wouldn't have chosen to do that a few, couple years later into his career. Like, this was right at the time before Top Gun really took off because they would have had a film. I think he would have done it. Or it came out. So I think if the character called for it, he would have done it. It's possible. I mean, Magnolia did. did that. But it was like the one... Oh, God, he's so good When he was in Superstardom where he was like really leaning into it. And I guess... Uh, Tropic Thunder. I mean, there's some times where he'll, he'll do that, but... He'll do it if the character calls for it. I think he's he's willing to step up for it. And the character, I think, in this movie definitely required that ridiculous. He just has to be the most cocky motherfucker you've ever met. <laughs> That's yeah. what he needs. And then, like, the skills to back it up is what sells it so well, is that he's so cocky because he knows he's so good. Mm-hmm. It's great. Absolutely. But I love that, yeah, they have that dimensionality of, yeah, with the game, he's so confident. But when it comes to Carmen, with those seeds that were planted in there, he's... He's insecure about that. So you see that one hustle that they do. Mm-hmm. Eddie's got his hands on her backside a little too low. And so Vince is all pissed about that. Just mm-hmm. great stuff. Um, and I love that they have that element in there throughout of like Carmen is kind of like testing the waters there and what kind of hustle she pulling and Eddie's wise to it and has to be like, look, we're just in this for business. Like he is just trying to keep it as a business relationship mm-hmm. um, with both of them, which I thought was good. But of course, you do have that little dynamic, you know, the father-son thing, which they, I think, played it subtly instead of leaning into it too yeah. much in a way that would um, detract from it overall. So I thought that was really smart in the uh, construction of the screenplay. Then we get to the the thing you had mentioned before. He gets hustled badly by Forrest oh, Whitaker. God. Great scene. Fantastic. Forrest Whitaker is so good in this. I didn't even know he was in it until he showed up. Like, I, I didn't even see his name in the opening credits. Yeah, and then he showed up, and I was like, "Oh, it's Forrest Whitaker." This is like before he's even famous or anything, and he mm-hmm. just kills it. He's also charming. All these, all these actors are so charming in their hustler roles. God, yeah, to play a hustler, God, for sure. But that was really well executed scene. Just the seeing him go back and go back for more, and like clearly getting destroyed. But he can't help himself. He's he's trying to beat the hustle, and he got he was the sucker. He got yeah. absolutely played. And so that uh, really messes him up. And then he's calling the whole thing off with Vincent Carmen. He's telling them to go off on their own. And he wants to just go off and 
practice on his own, basically, like try and prove to himself that he's not this much of a sucker. Um, and then so we get a little montage, which I'm a huge yeah. fan of, as always. Um, but I love the other elements thrown in of him like practicing pool and like being in some of the games and you see the money getting exchanged but you see as well he's like getting an eye exam done it was a, a very fun and, shot and then he's wearing the glasses for the rest of the, the movie exactly. so his, his eyesight's better god those glasses mm-hmm. look so cool on him they his outfits perfect. the glasses oh god you just had to know that he would get sunglasses prescription sunglasses yeah so yeah fantastic stuff and then the whole build-up to the the tournament, which I was wondering how exactly they were going to play this out. Like, was he going to team up with Vince again, or was it going to be a whole thing of like, all right, they're just in it for themselves, and then they're going to face off in the in the tournament, and that that's what goes down. I think the whole like that was impeccable when he first walks into the venue, and we like get that massive crane shot starting from up top, seeing all the pool tables, and they come down to Eddie taking it all in just fantastic scorsese a master always flexing on us just because he can and then the uh simultaneous break when all the contestants hit the cue ball for the first time to start off oh lovely um and just the little things too of like the callbacks of vince facing off against grady seasons Mm -hmm. um and so he's repeating all those lines that he was doing to him earlier in the thing of like oh it's a nightmare isn't it just keeps getting worse so satisfying you love to see that it's so funny that's some shit i would do <laughs> i'd be that cocky asshole that says that shit. i was saying that earlier about our our draft i'm that yeah, guy yeah, you're exactly that guy but i mean yeah guy. if grady was doing its events earlier on so yeah you're just feeding him the the same medicine back yeah exactly so, gotta give wrong him. with that oh yeah then you have eddie versus vince and then eddie's able to win I thought this moment was so what a amazing thing to include in there. But when he's walking out, mm-hmm. and then he has to take a step outside and screams, and it's like yes, yes. And then he recomposes himself and walks back in, and is yeah, like, cool, calm, collected self again. But just really seeing good. that little moment of like he needs to just let it out and fully embrace that, so good, great little touch. And then, very good that reveal that payoff oh god the literal payoff (laughs) exactly of him coming in handing over all the earnings the cut for eddie from vince dumping that match and getting all the winnings of the people the realization that that eddie didn't actually win it fair god yeah it's crushing it is it is so he put in so much work and effort and he was so down when he got hustled and he put in so much work to get back to it to back back to being the Eddie the fast Eddie Felson we knew, and he just got hustled once again. Yeah, by he the was guy unwittingly unwittingly a part of the hustle. The guy we t- the, a total reversal of their characters, which is just so masterfully done. Yeah, he that now now Vince, Vince is this man who is all about the hustle and he's all about maximizing profit, and Eddie just wants to win. He just wants to win fair. Yeah, it was impeccably done. He taught him that move. He taught him to dump in order to to get the money. And Vince did it on Eddie without even telling him. Oh, crazy stuff. So yeah, that was beautiful. And then Eddie forfeits 
his plays in the tournament because that doesn't matter to, matter to yeah. him as much anymore. He just cool wants to shot too. To... His reflection in the pool ball when he's just debating whether to hit it. It's a cool shot. Fantastic. It course. looked a little wonky because I mean it's the '80s, but cool, cool shot still. Yeah. And then he uh, gets a match with Vince in the uh, the green room in there, and yeah, he just doesn't care about that money anymore. The hustling. He just wants to be able to prove to himself he's still got it. He can beat Vince fair and square. He's going to do it over and over again. If he can't do it this time, he'll do it next week in Dallas and the week after that in Houston mm-hmm. and however long it takes. And then we see them uh, line up to take their uh, their shots, get the game going. We get a beautiful push in on Eddie. Hey, I'm back. Freeze frame. So 80s, which is amazing. But God, I want to be Paul Newman. (laughs) God. Yeah. Have you ever seen, you ever watch the movie with um, Paul Newman and Robert Redford where they're con men? What is it? Ah, Fuck. The Sting. Oh my. The Sting, yeah. Have you ever seen The Sting? I have not yet, but I want to. I'm going to very soon. So goddamn charming. Seems like it has the same uh, sort of vibes here with this. I love The Sting. It's so good. Yeah. So this was such a lovely film. I, again, I don't know what, I mean, going in, knowing Paul Newman and like early Tom Cruise and all this, I was like, okay, it should definitely be entertaining, but I did not expect to have such an amazing time watching it. But then also for there to be like such strong character depth to it. Like it's not Yeah, especially for like a sequel that's following a movie that's 25 years older than it, you know? Exactly. To be making that kind of a legacy sequel that far on. It's it's a full Top Gun Maverick moment, you know? It really is, yeah. Really this was is. the blueprint, straight up. So, how many palapushkas out of five are you giving it? Because Dylan, straight up, I'm giving it a full five. That's wild. I'm so glad you loved it. I was I was watching and I was like, Ryan's either going to love it or hate it. There's no in <laughs> between love here. It. I'm, I'm going to give fan. it. I'm going to give it a four. All right, that's fair. Yeah, it was. I did enjoy it. I did enjoy it thoroughly. It just didn't feel like there was enough, like, personal devotion put into it. Like, it didn't feel like Scorsese was personally motivated by the story. It just felt like he was making a really cool movie that was really well written, which is still good, and it still came out great. But there was no passion, it felt like, behind it. But it's still, you know, like, Newman just owns the movie and he's the best mm-hmm. part for sure. And it was still very entertaining, but it didn't feel like enough care was put into where every moment stood out and every moment was like a thrill for me and pushing it forward. It felt like a story that was written and then shot really well and then edited and then put on a screen and then watched. If that makes any sense. <laughs> I suppose so. I definitely felt the passion coming through because I think, uh, cause yeah, Newman definitely wanted this, uh, created, he was like pushing for it to happen and got Scorsese on board. And I think it was, yeah, I think it was a time in his career where I think he felt a bit like fast Eddie Felson, where he needed to, he needed to come back in a big way and prove himself. And he did with this, I feel like. So, yeah, I yeah. was fully on board. I felt the passion. I was, it was definitely, yeah, it was definitely a power move for Paul Newman for sure. Yeah. I felt passion from him completely. He was so devoted. You didn't feel the so passion from, uh, even if he, uh, to fake it in this way, like, Poole seemed so interesting in this film. 
it ends yeah, not absolutely, in real life. Yeah. But the way Scorsese <laughs> shoots it, it's just incredible. So again, shot incredibly well. I never, I never said it wasn't. The you said you didn't feel the passion, but yeah, I felt it doesn't feel like Scorsese really cares about the hustle, hmm. the know. grind of the hustle, you know. But that's yeah. just that's just me, because it just peters out a little bit in the middle for me, just a little bit before he gets hustled by Forrest Whitaker, but like after the uh, after the the American or the Werewolf in London. Mm-hmm. Uh, sequence like that little bit in there kind of peters out for me a little bit and I got kind of bored dang tragic and that's the part where it's about the hustle where he's teaching Tom Cruise about the hustle yeah I loved all that part I was very much invested but to yeah. use her own let's talk about age the age of innocence 1993 mm-hmm. the follow-up to Goodfellas based on a book by Edith Wharton from 1920 got Daniel Day-Lewis Michelle Pfeiffer Winona Ryder this being a period piece romance, a costume drama from Martin Scorsese. Who would have thought, especially coming off of Goodfellas? Could you have imagined like the announcement for that? Yeah, like, very this odd. Is Scorsese's next film, you just would have been shocked. You would think it'd be a, a typo. But yeah. have you seen this film before? I had never seen it before. Have you? I absolutely have not. So mm. first time going into it. What were your initial impressions? I didn't like it. I didn't like it oh, that much. No. Oh my god! I just—I've never been a fan of like high society period pieces. I've yeah. tried so many times. I've tried a room of the view. I've tried Gosford Park. I've tried uh, all the Anthony Hopkins ones. You know, I've, I've tried. I fucking tried, <laughs> and I just can't get into the idea of just a bunch of fancy rich people dressed up just spilling tea nonstop. Because because it's never. It's never about the quality of the tea. It's never about getting juicy gossip. It's always about good heavens. You can't be saying that. Good heavens, and like like the the shame of of spilling the tea. But who cares about that? I just want to hear the tea. I just want to hear the drama. <laughs> I want to hear the high society types lean into that shameful part of themselves where they are these you know model citizens, but deep down they they're just so judgmental of one another. That's that's all I really care about. And it's never really about that because it's always like. It's always a love story that shouldn't be happening. Like it's a forbidden love and that's like the talk of the town mm-hmm. and that's what's going on. But it's always from the perspective of the lovers who are like, who are defying society and are like, are just falling in love with one another. And I just, I don't care about rich people falling in love. I just, <laughs> they have everything already. Why do they need love to? I don't, I don't care enough. They can just arrange a marriage or something. I don't fucking care. I want to see the high society types gossiping about it. And and then like being super judgmental and and just like staring at them. I want the drama of that. That's why like if you watch Bridgerton, I really enjoy. I watched the first season of Bridgerton. I really enjoyed that because it wow. leans a little bit into that like ooh, it's kind of like a forbidden love. But ah, oh, the the tea, the gossip is just really really good. And I'm reading Anna Karenina right now, which is taking fucking forever. I'm like two hundred. <laughs> I've been reading it for like two months, and I'm two hundred pages into this thousand page book. Jesus. It is. I'm just not a fast reader, and this is a very long book. But I'm loving it. Because it's just it's just the rich people just spilling tea nonstop. That's all it is. They are just shit talking one another all the time, constantly. And it is about a forbidden love, yes. But then those people who are like the 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 model people who are like the they are falling in love with one another and they shouldn't be. Right. They're also shit talking the other characters about the shit that they're doing. It's like everybody has shit going on and they're <laughs> all doing these bad things and they're just everybody knows about everything and they're just talking about it nonstop. It's 
it is riveting. It is like, mm-hmm. it is like, I don't care about you because you're just so rich and you have everything, but God, I want to know like why so-and-so didn't show up to the gala last night. Why, why, why would he do such a thing? Ah, it's so compelling. And then in age of innocence in this movie, I just, it is so much about Daniel day Lewis's character's conflict with the, the no, the knowledge that he's engaged to Winona Ryder and that he has to like, he has to be betrothed to her and he has to be married to her and he has to mm-hmm. get over his feelings for Michelle Pfeiffer, but he can't do it. And he's so compelled by it. And just spends so much time doing that, that I never get to get the good tea about like Julius Beaufort or like the other characters or what's going on with them. That's all I fucking want. It's all I want. I want to know what's going on in their lives. Like the, the scene that was most compelling to me was it was literally the shot of the ballroom that the Beauforts have. And it's, it's like the, the ballroom slowly getting ready for the big ball that they have. And the mm-hmm. narrator's just like talking shit about Julius Beaufort and his wife about who they are as people and stuff. That was compelling. And then it just immediately shifted back to Daniel Day-Lewis and Winona Ryder. And I was like, I don't care. I don't care. Dang. Wow. I will say, though, once again, gorgeously shot and executed. Oh, my of God. And, and there's so much good symbolism in the way that it's shot. Like, this is where I feel a lot of passion. Like, the, the shot of Daniel Day-Lewis, the back of his head, and then the room around him just turns bright red while he's staring at it because he's, like, angry and passionate. Like there's a lot in there that works really, really well. The the oh the scene in the opera where he and Michelle Pfeiffer sit next to each other and everybody's talking between the scenes and whatnot, and then the 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 light the Irish shot yeah the Irish shot fades in on them specifically, and every other sound cuts out, and it's just the two of them whispering to each other, but it's silent otherwise. That, yeah, that was, was beautiful, really, really good, Absolutely. really, really good. But I don't care. <laughs> <laughs> Dang. What about you? That's what are your good. impressions? I have similar reservations about these like period piece dramas as you do. Most of the mm-hmm. time they don't interest me. And especially early on in this film, I was like, okay, because we're getting a lot of names getting thrown at us of the Beauforts and the See, that's Whitters, what I love. I love when they they fill me with names and then all of the drama about those people. That's what I love. Yeah, I, I love like when the they drama. Just... I just don't it was a lot all at once very early on before I had like gotten to a get any connection with anything that's going on. Like I needed a, a solid foundation for us to build. up. No, nah, I love it. Book, I love the idea because I can, I'm just better. Like I, I can track the names better if I'm reading it, but just having it get told to me all at once. And then I'm also trying to keep track of like this long tracking take that's going on. It was, I love it was the a idea lot of early the, on, but I love I just love the idea of the excessive name dropping. I just, I think it's so funny because when you're talking to somebody and they're giving you like tea from like their job or something, and you don't know any of the people they're talking about. They're just name dropping and name dropping and name dropping and name dropping. Just tons of people that are involved in whatever story they're telling. And the advantage is that you can pipe up and be like, oh, who, which one's that again? Who did that? In the movie, mm-hmm. you don't get that advantage, which I get. But I love the idea of like, oh, so-and-so knows so-and-so who's talking to so-and-so about so-and-so, and then so-and-so said so-and-such about so-and-such, and then so-and-so did this. <laughs> I love all that. I think it's great. If you made a movie that was two hours of that, fantastic. But so much of this movie is just Daniel Day-Lewis looking really handsome, just walking around and just being sad as fuck. Yeah. And it gets it's, really, really boring. No, it's fantastic. No, Dude, it's all boring. the ways that the light will like shape around his 
perfectly chiseled face. It's insane. I, just I mean, sure, he's that. incredibly handsome, and yeah. his performance is killer. Absolutely, but I mean, God, I was bored. Also, God, I was voice. bored. His like accent or whatever they had on there. He should go into a. You know, doing audiobooks now. Now that he's retired, I think he should come back. Just start doing audiobooks because. But then do all of his character voices instead of his normal voice. I would say so. Yeah, but this one particularly for any. If you you imagine a romance novel like this, if you read a book, if you had to read a book that was narrated by Daniel Day Lewis doing the Bill the Butcher voice, what book would you want (laughs) to be reading? Oh my goodness, your question. Um, Or the Lincoln voice. The uh, One Fish, Two Fish. Could you imagine any Dr. Seuss book? With one it? Fish, Two Fish, <laughs> Red Fish, Blue Fish. God, that'd be funny. That would be amazing. I don't know how uh, great that would be for getting the kids to go to sleep, but I think it'd be, it'd be, for all the parents that would be putting it on, that would be amazing. They would have yeah. fun with it. Um, but yeah, I think I thought he was great. I thought Winona Ryder was great in this. Michelle Pfeiffer as well, I thought for the most part was good. I think the what I liked about it, what I was worried about in the beginning was it was going to be just this like, okay, nonsense gossip, which I like too, but high society stuff, I don't care that much unless there's some other element to it that is going to like undergird all of that and make it more compelling. What I thought this one All I want is the gossip. That's all I fucking want. you're, You're different there. I mean, I love gossip again, in real life with people I know and care about, but with uh, this <laughs> random high society people, I don't, I'm not interested in that. Unless again, all I want is gossip about people that I love and people. care about. Well, yeah. I mean, do you care that much about gossip of completely random people? It's just random. Yes. Yes. I want I all the know, gossip. Like if it's I someone, love it. and again, people like you tangentially know, if you just know and you can like picture them in your mind and you're like, Okay, yeah. I don't even I don't need a picture of them, bro. If you got a good juicy story about people that I've never once met, I want to hear it still. Well, sure. I got to know. Just like, that's random people. But with this, you have the, the whole divorce plot line of her coming back from Europe, and he's the lawyer that's trying to advise her on this and what should happen there. I thought that was a compelling element that they threw in there. And the overall thematic undercurrent of the repression of this high society these particular social expectations and rules and mores that they have and they're simultaneously trying to push up against it but also not really rock the boat that much that's what i thought was compelling about uh the newland archer character is he like in the beginning you do see him like he says this thing of like oh should have women have the same rights as a man. Someone asked him that and he's like, yes, I think so. And he's like saying all these things and defending Olenska, whereas everyone else, to your point about like, all oh, these people weren't, you know, gossiping about her enough or like, you know. They, that part was good. When they were all shit talking, yeah, like they her and her and her divorce situation. But that was all in the background, you know, like it's, it's from Newland Archer's perspective as the person who's trying to defend her. I want to be in the trenches. I want to be with the side characters when they're shit talking Olinsky. <laughs> like like what we see is is the grandmother inviting everybody to a big gala dinner for Olensky and then nobody showing like everybody canceling and giving excuses and stuff. That's like side gossip. I wanna be in the trend I wanna be in the scenes where they get the letter and they're like, Olensky, she's getting divorced. <laughs> we can't go to that. 
we're gonna have to turn this down how could they invite us to that like i want to see that scene and we didn't get any we get everything from newland archer's perspective and i get it it's it's supposed to be a movie about him but like if you moved it around more and you included more of the side characters which i'm sure the book does i feel like i would have been more entertained maybe but going back to the the point about him you know defending olinska early on and so we think that okay he's got this more progressive mindset or at least one that's going to be more rebellious to this rigid social structure that is in place he's just a but nice guy. at every turn he actually is not willing to like fully go for that and break away from it he is advising her on like you know not doing the divorce for the scandal and part of that is you know he doesn't want to see an extreme level of smack talk going on after that would go down because that's what would happen but then also I think partially it is the the desire to remain in this uh, situation that he's in where he has all that privilege, he has that status, and part of him desperately wants to like be able to act on his desires, but the other part of him is like, I would much rather be in this place that I'm at, which is comfortable and familiar, and I don't want to change that. And so part of him like advising her in that way is protecting against there being like no reason for her and him to not end up together because that was before he had uh, gotten married himself at that point. Um, and then we see as well, like later on at the ending, he doesn't go and see her. Like even after his wife has passed, like May is gone now, his son is encouraging uh, him to do it. He's like, bro, everyone knows, everyone's been knowing, like just go and see her and then rekindle this. Um, and he chooses not to. He says, which I thought was a brilliant little line, of just say I'm old-fashioned. Which was referring to the like, oh, going up the stairs or going up the elevator. But it's really referring to, again, this old sensibility of 1870s, you know, Gilded Age, New York society, where that would just be improper for them to uh, end up together. And he would rather uh, cling to that fantasy that they had. Um mm but he doesn't actually want to act on it to the point where it'll cost him whatever position he had in life. So I thought that element to it was really strong. That's what I clung to. Yeah. In addition to the bits and pieces of gossip that they did throw in there, which was nice. I thought it was good. I thought like, I like that part of the story, the element of the story, but I just, just found myself getting bored so often in the movie. So, so often. Tragic. It was very, very long. It's only it's only two hours and eighteen minutes, but it felt a lot longer, and just not enough happens. You know, like it's a lot of dialogue, but there's not enough change, if you ask me. And mm-hmm. I get that, like there can't be change because the idea is that he's holding on to this repression and that he just needs to continue his life, and we're seeing that. But there's not enough, like even small changes in his life or in any of the side character lives. Everybody's just moving along through their life just as if it's set in stone, as if it's as if nothing can happen and that's horrible and whatever. But it's just as a viewer, it's very frustrating to sit there and just not experience any change in the story, to just experience the lives of these viewers. But then to to want to be passionate about their love as if there is change. But there isn't. They don't they don't fully go into it. They have awkward, silly kisses and like he like gropes her ankles or something. But like <laughs> they never like lean in and go for it. You know, there's it's just like a flirtation almost. But then he feels such love for her. But then we never see him 
I mean, we see him imagine such love, but never express it in, in too deep a way. And then he just feels like the, the look he has, the look on his face when Renona Ryder tells him that she's going, that Ellen's going back to Europe is great. It's a great shot. Great acting. Mm-hmm. Not even a word of dialogue needed. Fantastic. And then, and then the, the, when he reads the letter that she wrote and it pushes in and it does the, the, uh, what is it called? The thing again on his eyes. It, yeah, it the dims Irish. the lighting around his eyes. It's not even an Irish shot. They actually just dim the lights and, and they have a spotlight on his eyes. And uh, that was also great. Like there's, there's so many neat little filmmaking techniques in here that that's what, that is what kept me going to wanting to watch the rest of it is the neat filmmaking techniques that Scorsese used while directing this. The story did not captivate me as much as it should have considering all of the drama that comes from that situation or could come from that situation. The lack of drama that actually happens is disappointing. Yeah, I can see that where, yeah, there maybe could have been a few more uh, eruptions of like genuine drama. But again, that's part of the point I think is like that repression thing. You never really get a screaming match between anyone here or anything like that. But Um, I also feel like, I also feel like the pacing was a big issue for me because it has that Scorsese pacing where you are just flowing from scene to scene, bada bing, bada boom, bada bing, bada boom. And it doesn't like let up and like let you breathe as much intentionally because you want to move on because you're telling so much story in such a short amount of time and you are telling so much length of time in a short amount. Like that's what you're supposed to do is if you are, if you are stretching out a long story into the short two hour window, you got to bada bing, bada boom, move along very, very quickly in the story to get to those points. But I feel like yeah. if I'm not allowed to breathe and sit with those characters, I can't really fully envelop myself into that story that has such little change in it anyway. Like Daniel Day Lewis, we have a scene where he meets Ellen and and uh uh Winona Ryder in the beginning, and we find out that he is engaged to Winona Ryder and that Michelle Pfeiffer is her cousin, and that Michelle Pfeiffer knew Daniel Day Lewis when they were younger. That's like the the impression that we get in the very beginning, and then very quickly it becomes he is in love with Ellen as well as May to a degree. Mm-hmm. And we don't get that sort of gradual development of like, where did this love come from? When did he fall in love with her? When are we supposed to know? It's like, it, there's not enough foundation built there for me to care a lot about their love. Sure. I thought the, uh, their like initial attraction was built up quite well. I thought mm-hmm. like some of those conversations that they had, um, like at that one party and then later one-on-one, um, by the fire when they're discussing I thought that stuff was building up to their romance really well the issue that I had was when they started uh, being more forward about it and acting on it um, like at the midpoint when they have their kiss and then they mm-hmm. are like oh my gosh we can't be together why can't we be together I was like that that felt very melodramatic and not quite earned in that moment see um, I I'm the opposite funny. I thought the build-up was a little weak considering that like if the whole story is about them falling in love when they shouldn't be, if the midpoint is that moment where they're supposed to be melodramatic, they have not built it up enough to that point. But I felt like that scene itself where they do have that passionate kiss was really funny because the way that he kisses her is so like slobberingly. Uh, it's not supposed to be funny, but I really liked it because it's just so it's like when I picture like high society, 1870s New York people, despite how proper they might seem when they are behind closed doors and they like go to do smooches like that. I imagine it being sloppy and horrible like that. Like it's just so 
so it's really yeah terrible kissing and it's so different i was like that is exactly what it would be like if they kissed 100 percent. that is exactly what it would be like and then his reaction and her reaction where they like shy away from each other and then he gets onto his knees and like kisses her foot that i also thought was exactly what they would do those 1870s people like as prim and proper as they are in society when they are behind closed doors they are this melodramatic and ridiculous and i thought that that was earned as as far as the characters go because up until this point, we've only seen them in the public eye as these prim and proper characters. And then we finally get them behind closed doors and they act like this. And it's like, that's exactly what I thought that they would do. And it's perfect that that's what they're doing. But I didn't feel like it was earned in the sense that they don't, I don't think they'd develop the relationship enough in that first hour. And then they just expect me to believe that they are deeply in love, or at the very least, Dana Day-Lewis is deeply in love with Michelle Pfeiffer. I don't see it. The the scene that kind of sells it for me is when he goes to visit her at the other family's house. And he's like, he has like that vision of her coming up and wrapping her arms around him, even though she doesn't like, yeah, that's the closest I came to being like, okay, obviously I can tell he has a very strong infatuation for her. And I feel that strong, like the filmmaking techniques there were really, really well done, but I don't have enough scenes of them. Like they have that one scene at the party where they sit down and they talk to each other. Like she leaves the, the company of the other man to go sit across the room with him and talk for him for like, a minute or two but then it moves on because it's got that quick pacing to it that it doesn't let me rest and get to know the characters deeply enough to where i could fall in love with them falling in love sure. that's my issue so i don't think it works as a romantic story and i don't think it works as a, as a drop a gossip story, story yeah <laughs> which is which sucks but from a filmmaking perspective masterclass. oh my god the filmmaking techniques here are incredible like top of scorsese's career here like he's putting in all the stops for sure yeah i thought the it's fascinating our uh disagreements there um because yeah i thought yeah that first hour did work for me the midpoint not so much but it's totally flipped for you the one thing we are agreeing on is yeah scorsese pulling out some amazing tricks here and there which are different from like his usual repertoire obviously like the Tracking shots and long takes and whatnot are still in here. But yeah, that Irish shot, um, a new little thing he pulled out from his tool belt. There was this, like, when Newland was scanning over the crowd, there was, like, those rapid dissolves that happened, um, which is a really fascinating thing. It sort of only happened in that one moment. I'm not sure what the intention was there, but it was, I don't know, it was a really cool trick. Um, And then also the whole thing of, when they're reading the letters, it's them like staring into the camera, the person that wrote their letter reading it. Um, I love that, yeah. That was from, I believe in Little Women, Greta Gerwig's Little Women, they were doing that. So I wonder if this was the film that she pulled it from. Um, I wonder if there's any other film that did this that Scorsese took inspiration from, but I love that approach. I think that's like definitely yeah. the best way to have a, a I love the reading the letter. letter. Yeah, the reading the letter straight to the camera. Mm-hmm. I love the, it. Uh, He's got narration in this one. We get an objective point of view rather than... I actually didn't like the narration. As much as I had fun with some of the scenes where the the narrator, Joanne Woodward, is like divulging information, as as interesting as that is, I wish there wasn't narration in this movie because it felt superfluous. I wish that I had just learned the information from characters Mm. instead of from an objective narrator. Because it's just... I don't know. I, I usually love narration in Scorsese movies, but this one didn't feel like it fit as well well yeah because it wasn't it wasn't a character so we didn't have yeah, that subjective perhaps. view it was more of the objective one i thought 
it worked again in the beginning i felt a little rocky on it but ultimately i think it it was a good addition especially when it was like that uh the revelation of may knew all along like everyone knew all along and they had just been silently uh and politely enforcing that uh those social expectations and the social structure um, yeah. So they did the look, the look on Winona Ryder's face when you get that narration of she knew all along, but she's just smiling like there's nothing wrong. And then the cut to Daniel Day Lewis and he's horrified. Yeah. It's pretty That's good. Pretty that it's is amazing. Good. The whole thing, too, of, yeah, May uh, revealing the pregnancy thing. And then he catches that little moment of he was like, she said, Oh, I'm sure of it today. But she had told Olinska weeks ago. Um, I thought that was a little great moment too of, yeah, she was clued in the whole time and she was playing her own little games in the background, but he was just so oblivious to it. So I thought that was a really uh, nicely done reveal overall. So yeah, good stuff. I thought again, an unusual Scorsese film, but it had a strong uh, story to it. I thought from Edith Wharton and then his tricks were fantastic throughout. Fantastic. So uh, what would you give it? How many yellow roses out of five? I'd give it a three. Dang. Tough. Yeah. Tough it is tough. It all. is tough. It's probably my least favorite Scorsese movie. So actually, no. New York, New York is my least favorite Scorsese movie. This is, this is the second that. least favorite Scorsese movie so far that I've yeah. seen. And I've seen almost all of them now. Gotcha. I will give it a 3.5 out of five. Again, really? Yeah. Yeah, overall, I like the build up to the romance, but I don't think when it needed to stick the landing and then carry that through for the remaining half, I don't think it did that. So I lost investment there. But yeah, I mentioned all those other positive notes that I think it it had. Um, sure. But yeah, just the it was a tough barrier initially anyway with this genre not being like the one yeah. most. I agree. Going it is hard to sell it. to sell me on this kind of genre. Yeah. I right. did like, uh, oh, fuck, what is it called? With, ah, uh, oh, fuck. With Tom, Tom Wamsgams from uh, Mr. Oh, Darcy. Pride and, Pride, and Prejudice. Pride and Prejudice. I did like the Pride and Prejudice movie. Gotcha. And it's because it's just so, it is so breathtakingly romantic. The, the book and the and the movie themselves. And the tea is pretty good in that movie too. So like it, I feel like that one succeeded in, in terms of not only providing me with good drama, but also filling in really good romance. And I feel like Age of Innocence specifically kind of did not do well on both accounts, which is disappointing because I would want at least one or the other. Yeah. All right. Let's now talk about Silence, a more recent Scorsese picture from 2016, adapted from Shusaku Endo's novel of the same name, which has been adapted twice previously. Scorsese has been trying to make it for like 25 years since he first read that book in 1990 or 1991 or something. Um, and then we have the cast, Andrew Garfield, Liam Neeson, Adam Driver, Issei Ogata, Yosuke Kubozuka, and plenty more rounding out the cast. So this film following two Jesuit priests as they head to Japan during a ban on Christianity to find their mentor who apparently has apostatized, renounced the faith. So what do we think about this late stage Skriskezi film? So I saw this movie when it first came out in theaters with my dad. 
Wow. And I didn't I did not get a chance to rewatch it. So my oh. mem- my <laughs> memories are what I'm relying on Our here. Seven year old memories coming out here. Okay. <laughs> but my memories are very strong to a lot of specific images. And I do I recall enjoying this movie. I didn't I didn't fall in love with it, but I thought how he depicted the subject matter that is being depicted was really, really well done. And I enjoyed it. Mm-hmm. I thought it was a very interesting story, a story that I never heard before. And I thought it was a very interesting way to go about it. And it is hard to watch kind of at times. It is definitely brutal for sure. Uh, so, yeah, I think this is a fascinating one from Scorsese. We mentioned in the first Part of our director analysis, faith being one of the primary themes that he deals with, comes up in quite a few films, but some films are dedicated specifically to that, this being uh, one of them, and obviously the most recent one that he has. So I think that that aspect to it is super fascinating. And yeah, the story itself of is unique. Um, and we got a really solid cast helping to bring that to life. And then of course, it's Scorsese. So the images here are breathtaking and fantastic. I'm curious about which shots are the ones that stuck with you. I can say the ones that will definitely stick with me are the ones that dealt with that uh, crucifixion, the three men getting crucified in the ocean and the waves are just yeah. washing over them. Insanely beautiful from an aesthetic standpoint, but then like heartbreaking of what's going on uh in the narrative so that is just yeah an all-time shot right there and then another one would be it was an unbroken long take the camera's in the cell uh we don't really see rodriguez andrew garfield's character but it's meant to be like his point of view and it's panning back and forth over this huge you know courtyard area where we see them lay down the uh, the image of Jesus it pans over to uh, Kichihiro, who's the guy that you know continuously would be prophesizing, would always yeah. do that, and yeah, stepping on it. We see him get manhandled, brought over to that place. He steps on it, and then he runs off, and the camera follows him, like pans him as he leaves the uh, the area. All of that, and just like one single take, going back and forth, like the framing of it in between the bars. Uh, it was just sensational. So, yeah. yeah, these, my man went off. And there's plenty of other shots, too, of just, like, the landscape and the fog moving through it. Mm. Um, quite a few of those taking place at, like, twilight hours. They were, again, mesmerizing and fantastic. So, yeah, Scorsese, once again, showing why he's the master. Yeah, I recall like the the crucifixion for sure is the, the strongest imagery that comes out of this. I mean, it is just haunting and mm-hmm. like beautiful in such a dark way. The uh, the close ups of like the the feet stepping on the images of Jesus throughout the film, yeah, is a, is a strong thing that carried through. That I them apostatizing very specifically was very heavy handed in in how they depicted it, and uh, the image of Adam Driver. We haven't seen him for like forty minutes in the movie. And he, we finally reconnect with him, and he's like starved and being dragged through the ocean. Mm-hmm. That's brutal. He's being dragged like they're on a horseback and they're dragging him from behind the horse, right? Like he's tied, and he's being like pushed along. I'm trying to remember. 
he was it has him walking up he's just like walking in the crowd and yeah mm-hmm. he's shirtless you can see he's starved and yeah um yeah has lost like all his muscle and whatnot so does yeah desiccated would be the word or is that like when you're dead either way he's uh yeah definitely looking very starved and then he swims out into the ocean to try and stop them from uh pushing some of the the japanese christians into the water with like hay wrapped around them or something to get waterlogged and bring them down so i don't remember that he was ever getting dragged by a horse from behind. I thought he was like tied by a rope and they were pulling him. Not necessarily dragged, but like pulling him along. Uh, well, yeah, he was, I think, handcuffed and they did. Yeah. Yeah. But he was like walking. He was walking behind them. He was yeah, that's what I mean. Not necessarily dragged, but being pulled. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. That was that was strong. Like seeing him so starved after so long in the movie without seeing him. Just knowing that like it is hopeless in Japan for Christians right now. Like you will be destroyed essentially mm-hmm. yeah that was a strong image yeah so what, i think what that's else great. was compelling so i thought a lot of the which as you know i love uh rhetoric of course love debates love arguments so they have a lot of that in here scattered throughout of these like theological and philosophical debates or just like questions that are getting brought up and discussed between the characters mm-hmm. um so i thought that was really compelling and then just the conundrums that, like, the central one that the priests are facing throughout this, and then, you know, all the other Christians as well, is, like, do you renounce your faith in order to survive, which some people, like Kichihiro, are able to do, and do so fairly easily, whereas others will sacrifice their lives because they're going to remain steadfast and not apostatize. So that central, like, issue, I think, is just a fascinating one to take on. Um, because yeah, for someone that is a priest like Rodriguez, that is his whole identity. And this is also yeah. their Catholics as well. So, um, I'm not Catholic, so there's differences in between like how I was brought up in the church versus how they're brought up in church, but they need to complete like certain sacraments. And there's a lot more of a, um, like confessionals and things like that are valued much more in the Catholic church. And so public renouncements of your faith is like absolutely a no-no because that in the Catholic Church, yeah, you need to be like constantly living according to those creeds. And if you step away from that, especially even further back in time, like this is 1600s. So that is just something that would be considered disqualifying. Mm. Like if you publicly do that, then you are not a Christian. Like you have fully apostatized and even in the eyes of God, you would be seen as no longer a Christian. So to have that dilemma be presented to him of like, there are these other Christians here that are being tortured and you can stop that. But only if you do this, like one thing that undoes everything you've dedicated your life to up until this point, and then also potentially eliminates your possibility of getting eternal life right going into heaven i think that's just a really powerful thing to present to them and like in film having that get showcased is something i don't think we get to see a lot let alone in such a an honest and brutal way as this where you see 
the horrible actions happen, right? The persecuted Christians um, getting punished in this way. And then you see the toll that takes on Rodriguez, who has to see that, know that partially it's it's a something that came from his presence there. Like he's, him being there is what increased the, uh, their watching for the Christians and trying to take them down in order to snuff out those priests and then by extension snuff out Christianity as a whole in the region. So seeing that and being faced with that dilemma mm-hmm. and then having the doubts that come from that of how is this being allowed to happen? It's like the age old thing that all religious people have to deal with is like, Oh, you see these horrible things happen in the world. How can a loving God allow that to happen? And so I think the the interplay they had there of him questioning his faith when he sees those horrible actions. And usually when he's alone, that's when he, we get to get in his head again, they had narration in this one. Um, so you get to see him having that internal battle, but then when he's surrounded by those either persecuted Christians or when he's up against the inquisitors that are trying mm-hmm. to snuff them out, you see, he sort of has that, um, bolstering of his faith again in the face of either people that are affirming it alongside him or people that are challenging and testing him i just think that was a great um distillation of like how that sort of doubt and faith uh coincides with each other which is again coming from scorsese i mean he's mentioned he grew up in the catholic church he as I don't know exactly whether he considers himself Christian now or not, but he's always been fascinated with faith and then with like questioning it. Um, so I just thought it was a beautiful approach to mm-hmm. this subject matter. And then, yeah, just the story of it, seeing all these difficult things happen and having to reckon with it, these characters reckon with it mm-hmm. uh, was really powerful. So I enjoyed it for that. However, However, not a perfect film. I don't know how much of this stuff you'll remember from way back when, but number yeah. one, the accents that they had. Yeah, I remember. They're that. all supposed to be like Portuguese mm-hmm. priests. And Adam Driver, Liam Neeson, and Andrew Garfield were all doing different things. <laughs> there was yeah. just no unity to that. I think so I, it was there slightly- are times. Yeah, there are times in the movies where I just don't think you should try to do an accent. Like Amadeus is a movie where every actor in it is all American. Like they're, it's an all American cast and they're playing 17th or 18th century Austrians and they mm-hmm. just keep their normal American accents and it works great. At no point am I thrown off by the fact that they are not doing an Austrian. It's just like, if you are going to play a character that is a different, uh, that speaks a different language and just do an accent speaking English there's always going to be a disconnect because it's like when you just be speaking Portuguese. So yeah. why even bother? Why, why do the accent, but then speak English? Why not just speak English? Yeah. Agreed. And not so, do an accent. So I thought that was yeah ill-advised. Um, it wouldn't have thrown me off at all. If they just had kept their American accents or if Liam Neeson just did an American accent, which he can do. I know he can do it. If they had all just done American accents. Or if they had all done British accents, if Adam Driver threw on a British accent and Liam Neeson did a British accent, like, they would have been fine. I would not have been thrown off. Agreed. Because, yeah, it was throwing me off when they would uh, be trying to do 
some sort of accent, but it was it was not working. And then the acting for some parts uh, were not great. Some like yeah. Chihiro's actor, that whole scene, like the introduction scene of them meeting him, I just thought it was flat out bad in kind of every way. Like the acting, the really? editing of that, yeah, the shot compositions were not on point there. So I was like, oof, because this was early on in that film too. So I was like, uh-oh, hopefully this is not going to be two and a half hours of this. But it recovered greatly, I thought. I thought Andrew Garfield was great. Liam Neeson's great. Adam Driver, surprisingly, not great in this. I was not... Uh, yeah, he's not a big role that, that performance much. There. Yeah, it's not a big role, but the parts that he was in as well, I just, I don't know, I was not believing yeah. um, anything coming from there. And then... Yeah, there's some other smaller players here and there that, again, just weren't the greatest. So that kind of threw me off. I, I wonder how much of that was intentional or not. But again, it just felt like melodramatic, like over-the-top acting for quite a few things. And for what was, in many other ways, like a very slow and meditative, um, and again, trying to be harshly but beautifully authentic, it just was a mishmash. It was not reconciling those two different approaches and then again same deal with like some of the the editing work in there felt sloppy in parts and then in other parts it was like perfection so it was just frustrating to see that uh imbalance but yeah i think uh, overall a very powerful moving film again a tough watch at times mm -hmm. but i think that ending as well was really strong too and it it coincides with a lot of what scorsese deals with like rules the sort of system that you're placed into and then the repression that may come along with that for mm -hmm. this one obviously like their faith is entirely repressed so you see rodriguez is living out his life after having apostatized um but he is still clinging to the faith it is now again not something he's doing externally it's something he can't share with other people as a priest but personally with himself he is still clinging to that faith and then we see that signified by at the very end and the coffin is burning we get to zoom in and see that his japanese wife um that he was like arranged with left in a little crucifix so it shows that yeah he hadn't given up the faith and i think it's just a very solid um way to to wrap that up mm -hmm. how would you rate it i will give it four silent padres out of five yeah from what i recall from watching it so many years ago that's also what i would rate it so we're on the same page pretty much yeah cool all right so that is our second batch of scorsese films color money yep age of innocence and uh -huh silence indeed and i'm looking forward to our discussion about killers of the flower moon now that you and i are gonna hit stop on the recording and hop on over to the theater and watch it real quick oh it's gonna be fantastic three and a half hours of scorsese goodness can't oh, wait yes. that is all the time we have this week if you'd like to give your thoughts on the show you can email us at the box office show pod at gmail.com our main title theme for the show is sundown by joseph mcdade if you like the show, please give us five stars on whatever podcast app you're listening to, and be sure to tune in next week. Have a great rest of your day.